So the bourgeois media loves to remind us that Marxism doesn't work. In the last couple of years, the bourgeois media has taken to writing about the failings of Marxism. Everyone from The Economist to the Financial Times have put out articles to remind us that these ideas do not stand up in our modern time. But there is a reason to do this, right? We should, we should take all these attacks against Marxism as evidence these ideas are very much alive today. Uh, you know, when things are truly dead and done, we rarely need to be reminded of it. So ask yourself, when was the last time the Wall Street Journal printed out a reminder that feudalism is dead? So in recent polls do show that these ideas of Marxism are more flourishing right now than ever before. Gallup polls a few months back found that 49% of Americans were in favor of socialism. In Canada, the Toronto Star found that 58% of Canadians were in favor of socialism. Um, we can even take this Marxist university as proof. We have over 400 people registered. Um, this actually might be the biggest event Fight Back has ever done. So Marx began the Communist Manifesto by writing, a specter is haunting Europe, a specter of communism. But things have changed. Now that specter isn't only Europe, it isn't only haunting Europe, it's haunting the whole world. And this is where the brilliance of the Communist Manifesto really comes into play. In plain English, it explains why more and more people are drawn to Marxist ideas. Now, I understand uh, the hesitation some may have over reading this text. I mean, it was written over 170 years ago. So you may be asking yourself, how can this still be relevant? The Communist Manifesto is an anomaly. anomaly sorry. Uh, no other works of political philosophy or economy have aged as well as this text maybe with the exception of other works by Marx and Engels. No other writer has writings that are as relevant or as have kept as fresh as Marx's writings have. Not Locke, not Rousseau, not Adam Smith, none. And there's a very simple reason why the Communist Manifesto has managed to stay relevant to the state. Within its pages, Marx and Engels lay out a method of analysis. Uh, now, as Marxists, we're not dogmatists. We don't look at the Communist Manifesto as some sacred text and continue to use the method Engels and laid out because it's just the way it's written in the Communist Manifesto. No, we continue to use this method because it allows us, like scientists, to test our hypothesis against the experience of history and with it make corrections or additions as needed. So Marx famously wrote, philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. And this is what Marx and Engels set out to do, to change the world for the better. But they both understood in order to change the world, we first have to understand it. Uh, and the method of Marx and Engels the method that they laid out in, in the Communist Manifesto uh, help us understand the world. And we call this method historical materialism. So Marx and Engels begin the Manifesto with a very clear statement. The history of all hitherto existing society is a history of class struggle. The forms in which society produces things, what we would call the mode of production, forces individuals and groups of individuals into particular economic relations with one another, what we would call classes. And as Marx describes them, oppressors and oppressed. One class produces everything and the other class lives off that production. Now due to the contending differences of these classes, class antagonisms and then class struggle emerges. And this is the motor force of history. All major historical political developments have unraveled through this class struggle. Now we can look at former modes of productions to see how the class struggle has developed. The economic relations in ancient Rome were characterized by slave labor and class struggle took place between patrician, plebeians, and slaves. Then in the Middle Ages, you have feudal society, which divided society between the nobility, journeymen, guildmasters, and serfs. One of the main defining characteristics of feudalism was large landholdings to which serfs were attached to, and by extension, to a noble lord. 
So we can fast forward to today, to capitalism, and we can still see the continuation of class society and class struggle. Or as Marx puts it, right, the modern bourgeois society that has sprouted from the ruins of feudal society has not done away with class antagonism. It has but established new classes, new conditions of oppression, new forms of struggle in place of the old ones. Um, before I go any further, I do want to highlight something that I kind of glossed over. By looking at these different modes of productions, we can see that there isn't anything natural about capitalism. There's nothing inherent in humanity or human nature that causes us to produce all the wealth in society so that a few at the top can remain wealthy. For the majority of the existence of humankind as a species, we have lived without classes. Humanity has lived under class society for only a fraction of the time humanity has existed. And capitalism has existed for a fraction of that fraction. Capitalism itself has only existed for roughly over 300 years or so. Now, one of the most distinctive features of capitalism is the simplification of class struggle and the polarization of society into two opposite poles. As Marx and Engels write, society as a whole is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps, into two great classes directly facing each other, bourgeoisie and proletariat. The bourgeoisie is the ruling class. There are those who own capital, who own the means of productions, meaning they own the materials, they own the tools, the machines, the workplaces, all those things that the proletariat need to use to produce. The proletariat, on the other hand, or the working class, only owns one thing, their labor power. They only own their ability to work. And in order to survive, the working class is forced to sell their labor power on the market. Now, another distinguishing feature of capitalism is that, that it has played a progressive role in history. Now, this, not to some, this may seem like a controversial statement, but let me explain what I mean. Economically speaking, capitalism is a much more efficient system than all previous modes of production. It's capable of producing goods better and faster than slavery or feudalism before it. Marx and Engels explained why this is, why this is when they wrote, the bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production and thereby the relations of production and with them the whole relations of society. In the early days of the capitalists, in order to survive as capitalists, couldn't simply amass wealth. They had to reinvest in production. They had to make the means of production more efficient so they would not be outcompeted by the other capitalists. They had to develop better techniques, better machinery, better science, so that they could keep their positions as capitalists. This resulted in an increase in the productivity of labor and an increase in the general wealth of society. Now through all this, we made huge leaps as a species, as Marx and Engels put it. Capitalism has been the first to show what man's activity can bring about. It has accomplished wonders far surpassing Egyptians' pyramids, Roman aqueducts, and Gothic cathedrals. It has conducted expeditions that put, all, put in the shade all former exoduses of nations and crusades. And to further my point, if you're watching this live, it means you have a machine that quite literally allows you to access the sum total of human knowledge right now. So capitalism is progressive in the sense that it broke humanity free from the chains of feudalism and it allows for the modern world and all of its wonders within it. That being said, however, Marx also wrote that capitalism came to the world dripping from head to toe from every pore with blood and dirt. As Marxists, we also understand that in order for capitalism to exist, it needed workers. So it kicked people off community held lands, communally held lands and forced them into dingy and dangerous factories to work 12 to 16 hours a day. In order for capitalism to exist, it had to spread all over the world. And this meant the genocide of countless indigenous people. In order for capitalism to exist, it needed cheap labor in the Americas. 
which caused the horrors of slave trade. In order for capitalism to exist, it needed to defend the markets which it, which it had already conquered, which led to the brutality of the First World War and the atrocities of the Second. As Lenin said, capitalism really is horror without end. So when Marxists say capitalism was a progressive war, force, it's not a moralistic or a value statement. We mean that it could and did develop the means of production. But as is often the case with these types of things, capitalism has turned into its opposite. It's now a reactionary force that can no longer develop the means of production. And the manifesto explains why this occurred. Now, capitalism is a social product. What I mean is that the goods produced under capitalism are produced by social labor. So for example, a car produced by a car is produced by many workers. You know, from the beginning, from those who extract the raw materials needed to produce the car, to those who assemble all the parts together, uh, even all the way to those who sell those cars. While while this process is social, the mines used to extract the minerals, the assembly plants, and the car dealerships are all privately owned. It is this private ownership of the means of production that allows the capitalists to keep the value of all the goods produced. For themselves and give, the, and give the workers back a small portion of the value in the form of wages. Now, the capitalists cannot pay the working class the full value of their labor. If the capitalists did pay the worker for the full value of their labor, it would mean that they could no longer draw profit. They would fall into ruin and cease being a capitalist. Now, because the capitalists do not pay their workers the full value of their labor, that means the working class can never buy back all the goods produced for the market. Now, because the capitalists cannot sell their goods in order for them to maintain their profits, the capitalists are forced to cut wages, cut benefits, and to lay off workers. Now, what this inadvertently does in turn is that it further shrinks the market for their products, as, as it's the working class that makes up the majority of the consumers in the market. Now, as Marxists, we call this the crisis of overproduction. And this is what causes capitalism to continually fall into crisis. Now, before I continue, I do want to point out one thing. Uh, there's no such thing as late stage capitalism or the final crisis of capitalism in the sense that there's going to be some automatic collapse and we're all going to be great, fine. No matter how severe the crisis is, there exists powerful interests which depend upon the preservation of the status quo for their income, for their privileges and their prestige, and will fiercely resist all attempts to change society. But because of the, now, because the markets are oversaturated and the capitalists cannot sell other products, they now have no reason to invest in production. To prove my point, I'll give a modern example. We only have to look at the statistic for the capacity utilization. Uh, this measures how much the productive potential of machinery and factories are actually in use to create commodities. Globally, the statistic has been in decline over the last 50 years. In the first quarter of 2020, Canada, Canada reported a 79% utilization rate for the capitalists, if they can't fully use what they have, there is no reason for them to invest in ways to make more of their products or make them faster. And since the capitalists are not investing their money, it explains why something like in 2015, Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, made headlines when he chided corporations for sitting on cash and not investing. At the time, Canada, in Canada, this dead money, this money just sitting in bank accounts doing nothing, amounted to $700 billion. And since then, uh, this dead money has ballooned to $950 billion. Um, and yeah, these are Canadian statistics, but you'll find a similar situation, situation in every single country in the world. 
Now, because the working class is able to produce massive amounts of wealth socially, only to be expropriated by a few capitalists privately, this economic contradiction expresses itself in social contradictions. In every other generation before, before capitalism, it would seem absolutely ludicrous that the problems we face now is that our markets are oversaturated and that we have just too much of everything, as Marx and Engels wrote. Society suddenly finds itself put back into a state of momentary barbarism. It appears as if a famine and a universal war of devastation had cut off the supply of every means of subsistence. Industry and commerce seem to be destroyed. And why? Because there's too much civilization, too much means of subsistence, too much industry, too much commerce. So at the same time that the working class is producing massive amounts of wealth, we see conflict over resources. We see so-called scarcity forcing indigenous people in Canada to live in some of the most abhorrent conditions in the world. According to the UN, a human being dies every 10 seconds from hunger, from hunger-related causes that could easily, prevented with, could easily be prevented with proper nutrition. And at the same time this is happening, the working class produces enough food to feed the world population twice over. And despite all of this, the UN acknowledges that, that, that they were off pace to reach a goal of eradicating world hunger by 2030, and they're going to have to delay their goal. Now, this contradiction goes on and on. People are getting laid off by the thousands, while others have to work two to three jobs to survive. Some of the wealthiest countries in terms of resources are the world's poorest in terms of income. To bring it a little closer to home, Edmonton's homeless population is roughly 2,000 people. And at the same time, Edmonton has more than 20,000 vacant homes. Uh, if we do the math, that means that we could give every homeless person in Edmonton 10 houses, and there would still be more houses left over doing nothing. And again, despite all this, the city of Edmonton couldn't meet its goal of ending homelessness by 2019, and instead has pushed back its target date to 2023. And yes, again, these stats are for Edmonton, but you'll find a similar situation all across Canada and all over the advanced capitalist world. <clears throat> now, besides these contradictions, there is a massive, uh, there's massive wealth inequality as well. The world's richest 1% have more than twice as much wealth as 6.9 billion people. The combined wealth of the 10 richest people in the world is $8 trillion. It, it was revealed that Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, is on pace to become the world's first trillionaire by 2026. In Canada, the top 1% of Canada's families hold about 25% of the wealth in the country, which amounts to roughly $3 trillion. As Marx wrote, the accumulation of wealth at one pole is therefore, at the same time, the accumulation of misery, agony of, to agony of toil slavery, ignorance, brutality, mental degradation at the opposite pole. Now, I'm sure you're wondering, well, what can we do about it, right? And to put it bluntly, as individuals, nothing at all. But I'll give you a hint what you can do using a quote from the manifesto. With the development of industry, the proletariat not only increases in number, it becomes concentrated in greater, greater masses. Its strength grows and it feels that strength more. Development of capitalism leads to the increase of a certain group of people, nay, an economic class, whose interests are diametrically opposed to those of the capitalists. And the only way this class can, own, can have its interests met is organizing and overthrowing the capitalist system. And this is the role of the proletariat. This was true in Marx's time, 
But since then, the proletariat, the working class, has grown exponentially and now makes up the vast majority of people in every single country in the world. In China alone, in the last 30 years, the working class has increased by hundreds of millions of people. Now, as I've explained before, the way capitalism functions is that the capitalists want to produce more and more profit. And, only, and the only way to do this is to pay the workers less and less. So through market forces, they attack workers. We see this all the time. For example, Sears executives were given $9.2 billion in bonuses, yet they still closed all their stores in Canada, forcing thousands of workers into unemployment. They gobbled up their pensions and didn't even pay them a severance. Or for another example, back in March, Kenny gave $7.5 billion handout for the Keystone XL pipeline. And as far as I know, we still haven't seen any jobs come back to Alberta. In fact, unemployment has risen since that time. Now, because of the, these attacks, capitalism forces the working class to fight back. And because the working class produces socially, we understand intrinsically that we have to fight collectively as well. This is why the proletariat organizes itself through unions, through parties, and through mass organization. This is why Marx called the working class the only consistently revolutionary class. Workers are forced to fight back and they're forced to organize collectively parties and through mass organizations. Sorry. Now, um, as Marx and Engels wrote, one of the classes that stand face to face with the bourgeoisie today, the proletariat alone is a really revolutionary class. The other classes decay and finally disappear in the face of modern industry. The proletariat is the special and essential product. Now, the growing interest in Marx's ideas and socialism should leave us optimistic about the future. Now, it may seem like a long, long time ago, but only last year, there was a wave of revolutionary energy all across the world, from Chile to Sudan. Or we only have to look at our neighbors in the South. The amount of people in the streets uh, have managed to make the ruling class absolutely tremble to its core. And this is despite the fact that the majority of the working class has yet to join in the struggle there. Or we can look at the situation in Lebanon as well where in under a year, the courageous Lebanese working class has overthrown two different governments. History has proven that when the working class finally decides to move, there is no force on earth that can stop it. And as Marxists, we have an important role to play. As Marx and Engels put it, the communists therefore are on the one hand, practically the most advanced and resolute section of the working class, uh, of the working class parties of every country. That section which pushes forward all others, on the one hand, theoretically, they have the great mass of the proletariat, the advantage of clearly understanding the line of march, the conditions and the ultimate general results of the proletarian movement. This is the role of the Marxists, to guide the working class movement by injecting it with the correct ideas and the correct programs, the working class can ultimately take power and begin to fundamentally transform society. The only way to accomplish this is to replace the economic basis of capitalism by abolishing private property more specifically, the private ownership of the means of production. To be clear, since this does come up every once in a while, this doesn't mean that Marxists want to take away your phone or your laptop or your shoes or your toothbrush. Uh, we consider all this personal property. But what abolishing private property does mean is expropriating the commanding heights of the economy, the banks, the financial houses, the monopolies, and furthermore, putting these companies under democratic workers' control. This would finally put an end to the anarchy of production under capitalism. 
this would put an end to the production for the profit motive. And instead, we can make human need the main motive for production, creation, and innovation. Now, if this sounds like something bad to you, uh, you might not be in the economic class that this presentation is intended for, but Marx and Engels already wrote a response for you in the Communist Manifesto. They write, you are horrified at our intending to do away with private property. But in your existing society, private property is already done away with for nine-tenths of the population. Its existence for the few is solely due to its non-existence in the hands of those nine-tenths. You reproach us, therefore, with intending to do away with the form of property, the necessary conditions for whose existence is the non-existence of any property for the immense majority of society. So what this means is that the grand majority of people in the world don't own private property. They don't own banks. They don't have any monopolies. They don't own any factories. And for the few that do, the only way that they can have them and keep them is by preventing any of us from ever having those things. And so capitalism is incapable of advancing society any further. Uh, so because of that, I think it's high time that Marxists should openly, in the face of the whole world, publish their views, their aims, their tendencies, and meet this nursery tale, the specter of communism. And this is what Fight Back and the International Marxist Tendency aims to do. We openly declare that we intend to bury the decrepit capitalist system, but we can't do it alone. Above all else, what capitalism creates is its own grave diggers. So grab a shovel and join us.